as Wes was walking away out of habit. If you have your Bibles this morning, uh, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1, continuing our series going through the book of 1 Peter that we've been in for a few weeks now. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13 and going through verse 21. If you're looking for 1 Peter in your Bible, it's toward the end, toward the back. Uh, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. If you hit the Johns or Revelation, you've gone too far. But we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1, continuing our series going through the book of 1 Peter, starting in verse 13 this morning. It says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. When doctors graduate from med school, in some order, they pass the classes, they pass their boards, they get matched to their residencies, and then they have some kind of graduation ceremony, maybe a white coat ceremony. And in one of those ceremonies, at some point in this process, every medical student has to go through, that they uh, have to go through to become a doctor, they have to take what's called the Hippocratic Oath. Most schools have their own versions, a slightly different version of however they say this. They're all a little bit different from each other, but they all have roughly the same point. They're all trying to get across roughly the same idea, that as a doctor, you have to promise to serve your patients, to heal and not to harm. You have to operate from your conscience with the best of your ability. You have to do so in discretion with your patients, keeping confidentiality. They take an oath to operate as a doctor in that way, that if you're going to be a doctor, you have to live according to that oath, according to those principles. You're not a doctor. You're not actually part of the profession. You're not part of the brotherhood until you've committed to living that kind of life and acting those kind of principles as a doctor. It's not enough just to learn what you need to know. You don't get to be a doctor just so you can have a cool answer when someone asks you what you do for a living. Part of being a doctor is living according to these commitments, living your life like a doctor, like someone who's taken that Hippocratic oath. So that oath that they take is a promise that they're supposed to keep. But really, it's a reminder to them. It's a charge to them, a command given to them as they go out into the world as doctors, a guide for how to conduct themselves in their new lives, how to perform their practice as they go forth. In today's text, Peter gives a charge to those who have been born again. We've been talking in uh, this first chapter of 1 Peter these last few weeks about kind of the results of being born again, all that God has done for you in causing you to be born again. And in today's text, Peter makes a transition. He says, therefore, so because of all that God has done, now he's telling you what to do, how you should be, how you should live your life as one who has been born again. 
He's talking to these elect exiles, and he's explained what God has done for them, how he saved them, everything that it took to get to this point. But now there's a pivot in these verses, and he begins to tell those who are Christians how they should live in light of who God is and what he's done for them. And in these verses, we'll see three charges that he's given to born-again believers in our text. And we're going to focus on these three charges given to those who have been born again today. The first charge given to those who were born again in our verses today is to set your hope on Christ. We who have been born again are to set our hope on Christ. Look at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our hope, our trust, the one thing that lets us sleep at night and what spurs us on toward whatever is in front of us, that has to be the grace of Christ. Our hope should be fully set on this. We don't equivocate. We don't waver. We don't hedge our bets with anything else. So we're hoping partly in Christ and His cross, His grace, but we're actually going to have a little bit of hope over in this other area, in ourselves, and what we can do. No, we push all our eggs in this one basket. Our hope is fully set. And this plan makes sense because our hope isn't in anything that isn't possible to, to be able to sustain it. Our hope is in the grace of Christ. It's not in us. It's not in our ability to earn what we've received or to, to keep what we've received. That's why I think the language of being born again is so important. Do you know what you did to cause you to be born? Nothing. Do you know what you did to cause you to be born again? Nothing. So now, because of that, your hope can fully rest on the gift of the one who caused your salvation, who caused you to be born again to a living hope, and who is now guarding that salvation for you. The therefore that this verse begins with, it harkens back to everything we've seen in 1 Peter up to this point, that he's caused our salvation, he guards our salvation, he planned and predicted our salvation. He planned that we would follow Christ, and he saved his people by suffering, which leads to glory. And now we are supposed to follow Christ in that same path. Because he has saved us in this unshakable way, in this way that cannot be moved. Therefore, in light of this salvation, we should set our hope fully on the grace that is that salvation. I mean, he's done everything for us. Why would we now hope in anything else? Why would we think that we should reserve any hope in our ability or our power? That's not how we got here. It's all led to this for us. So don't turn back now. You climbed all the way to the top of the diving board. You walked to the edge. You looked over your toes to see the water at the bottom. Don't turn back now. No, set your hope fully in the grace which brought you here. Set your mind fully on the grace that you will receive when you finally see that which you currently do not see. Hope in his coming salvation for you. And the way that you do that, the way that your hope can be fully set on the grace of Christ in this verse is by preparing your minds for action, by being sober-minded. You see, you have to get ready to live the Christian life. You have to work and train at it to be prepared for the life that leads to salvation. It's not something that just happens. It does take effort, effort in the mind. The ESV, what I read, it says to prepare your minds for action. But if you have a different translation, particularly if you have like a King James or something that might be a little bit more literal, it probably says something like, gird up the loins of your mind to prepare for action. To gird your loins is basically uh, 
in a different way of saying it, is to, to hitch up your skirt to get ready, to prepare for a better range of motion. It actually comes from the battlefield, that they were all wearing long robes or tunics, which would be able to get in the way. You trip over them as you were running or as you were fighting. So they would take the long ends of their robes, wrap them around their legs, bring them back up, and tie them together around their waist, effectively making like shorts or kind of like a diaper that they would have to be able to have them a full range of motion. And if you have a kid who is wearing a diaper, you know they have a full range of motion in something like that. They can do whatever they need to do. So whenever you gird up your loins, you're preparing yourself to be able to have that same kind of motion to be able to run and fight in the literal sense. The ESV doesn't use that phrase because it's not something that's immediately familiar to us. We don't really hear gird your loins very often. The one example, as I was thinking through of this phrase, to think, try to think about any time you might have heard this before, the only thing that came into my head was The Devil Wears Prada, which is a movie from about 20 years ago. Uh, about a fashion lady who's really mean to her employees. And she surprises everyone one day by showing up to the office. She's not supposed to be there. She's not supposed to be there at that time. But whenever she walks in, everything has to be exactly perfect. So they hear she's coming, she's in the elevator, and everyone's running around in a frenzy trying to make sure that everything's perfect. So whenever she walks in, she's not going to be able to be mad at them. And at one point, one of their employees just opens the door, shoves his head in, and yells, everyone gird your loins, and then leaves. They've got to get ready. You have to prepare. It can't just happen. No one's happy whenever they just walk in and see the office in this state. They've got to make sure everything's set just perfectly for Meryl Street to come into the office and not yell at them whenever they do that. That's the picture that Paul is trying to give whenever he tells us to gird our loins, to gird the loins of our mind. He says that we've got to prepare for action to be ready for whatever might come our way. Elijah in the Old Testament had to gird his loins in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 46. It says, And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So he girded his loins, he gathered up his garment, and then he outran a chariot that had a head start to the city that it was going to. Okay, that's the kind of prep that Peter is telling us we have to have here. That you've got to prepare in that sense. Prepare your mind for that kind of action, for that kind of uh, sustained effort. And we have to take this seriously. Being sober-minded in this verse, that's not so much talking about avoiding drugs. It's making sure that you approach this task with the necessary seriousness, with the necessary sobriety to do it well. But this preparation, this seriousness, it's all aimed at the mind which is going to determine the place of your hope. Peter's saying that for believers, we should actually start with the head before we focus on the hands or even the heart. If you're born again, God's already taken care of the heart. He's given you a new heart, new desires. You're a new creation. And he's saying if you get the mind right, the hands, what you do, that's going to follow. But when it comes to the mind, you're supposed to gird it up, to prepare it for action, to be sober, serious about this. And I've got to say, it's my experience in most churches that we don't do this very well. We want everything to be immediately practical. Tell me what to do. Tell me how to feel because of what God has done. Don't you dare tell me how to think 
about what God has done. We love being told what to do in light of everything that we've been told. But we don't like being told how we're supposed to be thinking about the things that we've been told. We don't really like learning about theology, about God or the Christian life, unless it's learning it in such a way that we can immediately answer the question, what am I supposed to do with this? You're like a kid in math class who says, when am I ever going to use this? I think we tend to have that same attitude. But Peter's approach here is to point out that our hope has to be set on the grace of Christ before we can do anything else. And the way that your hope is set on the grace of Christ is by girding up your mind to be able to do that. Your hope can't be set on the grace of Christ unless our minds are prepared, unless we take these things seriously in our minds. So feel, yes. Engender the emotions of the heart, yes. Do, yes. Put it into action, absolutely. But if you're trying to do without first thinking, then you're trying to land the plane without lowering the landing gear. It's never going to work. It's never going to go well. We should think about the grace of Christ. We have to understand how it was accomplished and who accomplished it. We have to see what Scripture says about its eventual revelation. Train your mind. Focus on learning what God has said as if there's a test coming. We have to take it seriously, as if it's the only knowledge we have that's going to matter in eternity. And then, at that point, when that happens, we'll finally be able to focus and set our hope fully in the coming grace that we now understand and know more fully because we've set our minds on it. God tells us how to act out of that hope once we have that hope, that we should be holy. That's the second charge given to born-again believers in these verses, to be holy. Look at verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We'll get to that in a moment. We're told to obey as children are to obey. And we all either have kids or have been kids, right? We know how this is supposed to work. When your parents tell you to do something, we know exactly what's supposed to happen. We know when we tell JC to do something, our daughter, what we're looking for, what we want, when we tell her something, when we give her a command, what we would classify as true obedience is to obey all the way right away, and with a happy heart. Now, she is almost two, so I don't know that that really happens. It's pretty rare that we get all the way, right away, and with a happy heart. If we get one or two of those, that's a pretty good day. But she's working on it. She's not yet a perfectly obedient child, and she actually will never get there. But she's growing more obedient every day. There are moments right now when we tell her to do something and she immediately, right away, with a happy heart, all the way, is able to obey. And that's what God expects of us as his children, that we obey him as obedient children, all the way, right away, and with a happy heart. If you can't manage that kind of obedience, 
that I don't know that it's possible for you to be able to control your passions as we're told to here in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be conformed because you are an obedient child. Don't do what you used to want to do before you knew better. There was a time where every one of us had to be told, do not touch the oven. Don't put your hands on the stove. Back when I was growing up, you couldn't touch the outside because the outside was also hot. Now I think they found some magical way to make the outside not hot while the inside is hot. So our kids are in slightly less danger than we were wherever we were growing up. But I remember growing up, if, you, if mom was making anything in the oven, anything in the kitchen, there was like a five-foot perimeter around the oven that you had to keep because you could feel it. But there was a time when I didn't know that. There was a time when I didn't learn that lesson. There was a time when I ignored the instruction not to touch the oven, when I let my ignorant passions rule over me. And when that happened, I learned my lesson real fast, about as fast as it took for the heat to be felt in my fingertips and then processed by my brain before I screamed as loud as I could. Touching ovens was no longer anything I had interest in. And I think we have to approach our Christian lives as born-again believers in roughly this same way. Don't be conformed to what you used to want to do before you knew better. You now know what God has designed for you. So be conformed to that design. You now know what God has designed for human sexuality. So don't run back to that pornography that you used to desire. You now know that there's no amount of money that feels like it's enough. So don't run back to that workaholism that you used to be conformed to. You're touching the oven even though you know it's going to burn you. Paul gives us almost an identical command in Romans 12.2. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you see how connected everything we're talking about today is? The way that you avoid being conformed to this world Conform to the passions of your former ignorance is through the renewing of your mind. You gird the loins of your mind. You set it fully on God's grace in Christ, and you're renewed. You're able to be a Christian nonconformist, standing firm against the temptations that still cling to you sometimes. Those passions that you might still have from your former ignorance. Whenever that happens, you're able to deny yourself and to be like Christ, holy as he is holy. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Who we are as Christians, how we live now as those who have been born again is supposed to be marked by holiness. This isn't a new idea that Peter just came up with. He's citing Old Testament instructions from God to his people, showing that this has actually always been the expectation for them. Leviticus 19.2, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Because he's our God. Because he's holy. We as his people, his image, are supposed to reflect that same holiness. You see, we don't get to continue in our former lives. We don't continue to be ruled by our former passions and still claim that we're his people. 
We have to live differently. We have to be different now that we are Christians, now that we're in Christ, now that our hope is set fully on the grace of Christ, which is going to be revealed to us. And Peter's going to talk more explicitly on what that looks like throughout the book. But the overarching goal in all these things he's going to give, every command that he gives to us, is that we should be like God is, like the God who called us, the God who saved us, the God whose grace will be revealed in Christ on the last day. He calls us to be holy like him. But I've got to remember, I've got to remember to remind you that we can't forget the order here. We're still in chapter 1, but this is the fourth sermon in this book. Peter said a lot of things in chapter 1 so far before we got here. And all of those have focused on what God has accomplished for us. He called us in his foreknowledge. He planned for grace and peace to be given to us. He caused us to be born again. He's now given us an inheritance. He's fortified us with joy in the midst of suffering. And he's brought all of this about through the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the climax of his plan for his people. Okay, so he has done all the work and he has saved us. Therefore, now we are supposed to be holy. He doesn't switch that order around. He doesn't ask us. He doesn't expect us to be holy so that he'll do all those things, so that he might save us. He's done things and now as a response to his gospel, we who have experienced that salvation are supposed to live holy lives set apart for him, to follow what he has commanded of us. We have to get the order right here. You cannot be holy on your own. Trying to be holy so that God will accept you is actually offensive to him. He doesn't look at you and say, oh, well, you're trying your best. I guess I'll take that and give you an A for effort. It's actually offensive to him. He calls that self-righteousness. That's self-glorification. He gets nothing out of you trying your best to earn your place before him. But when, as a response to what he's done for us, when we humble ourselves before him, when we trust only in his finished work and his grace for the salvation of our souls, for the forgiveness of our sins, now he gets all the glory. Now there's no self-righteousness to be had because the righteousness that we do have is Christ's righteousness which has been given to us. We're enabled to live our holy lives as he intended without having to live under the weight of a perfection that we could never uphold. So be holy because the God who saved you is holy. That's simply what born-again people do. That's how we live our lives. And born-again people also conduct ourselves with fear. That's the third charge given to born-again believers in our verses today. Born-again believers should conduct yourselves with fear. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. 
Let me clarify what I mean by fear here, the fear of the Lord, because this concept of the fear of God has kind of fallen out of how we tend to talk. We don't talk about the fear of the Lord very often anymore, and I don't know that we ever have nailed this concept. But we don't even use the words anymore. When we do, we'll often say it and then kind of redefine it to the point where it really doesn't sound like fear anymore. Within this concept is the the idea of reverent awe, that we are so in awe of what we see, of what we know, that there is now a solemn attitude that we have. We are speechless because of the wonder. That's right. But I think it continues through that awe to the point of fear. With all that wonder, with all that awe, there comes inevitably also fear. Because of how wonderful it is, how awesome it is. Okay, I love fireworks. I I could watch them for hours. July 4th, love it. Fireworks show, great. Take me to a baseball game, I will stay through the whole terrible game to get to the fireworks at the end. I can watch them for hours and not get tired of it. I think that's always going to be the case. But as much as I like them, as much as I am oohed and awed by them, I'm not currently afraid of them, but I can vividly remember a time, specifically when I was. We were on vacation as a family, and we went to a minor league baseball game in Nashville. I was probably in either elementary school or middle school, somewhere around in that time frame. In our seats, we were out in the outfield, pretty much as close to where you could get to the fireworks show legally without someone coming and saying, hey, you can't put those people there, their hair's going to catch on fire. We were right there, right up against it, all the way out in the outfield, as close as we could get. And whenever the fireworks started, they were incredible. They were the biggest fireworks I have ever seen to this day. And maybe that's my memory making them larger now to try to justify the fear that I had. But they were just so big. They were so loud. Each one, it just got bigger and louder. And after a few minutes... Yeah, I began with just wonder and awe, and then it switched over into fear. I started recoiling every time that a firework went off. I started holding the seat tighter and tighter, bracing for impact, leaning as far away from it as I could possibly get with each coming blast, just hoping that it was going to be the last one. They were no longer just a cool light show with sound to me. They had become an active danger in my mind that I wanted to get away from. Every fiber of my being was aware of their size, of their power, to the point that I was now afraid. And I think, to a certain degree, that's what we have to remember when we talk about the fear of the Lord. Now, there's a right way and a wrong way to fear the Lord your God. The wrong way is to only fear him. To fear him in the way that you might fear spiders. There's no love with that fear. There's not really even any wonder with that fear. There's just disgust. There's just terror. There's just get it away from me. Okay, that is fearing God wrongly. You don't live and act of fear of God in that way, but you should still fear him. You should fear him in the way that you might fear a good father. Right? A bad father, you might fear because he's abusive, because he's temperamental. But you're not going to fear a good father that way. 
You'd only fear a good father in such a way that you know there's actually nothing for you to be afraid of because of his love for you, because of your obedience to his wishes. But you also know that there is a just and right discipline that you would receive if you were to disobey, if you were to cross his good character, that there is an action that you might take that would cause your good father to enact discipline against you in such a way that you would be afraid. That's the fear that we have toward God. C.S. Lewis was trying to get this concept across in the Chronicles of Narnia when Mr. Beaver's telling the children that Aslan the king is a lion. Susan, who up to this point thought he was a man, says she'd be rather nervous meeting a lion. So she asks, well, is he safe? Mr. Beaver scoffs. He says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I think that conveys how we should think about what we should think about when we think of the right fear of the Lord. No, he's not safe. He's a lion. You should be afraid of him. But he's good. He's the king. So now you have no need to fear him anymore. You should also love him. Job gives a special insight into why the fear of the Lord is how we should conduct ourselves. Why Peter goes to this place of the fear of the Lord to tell us how we should live as Christians. Job chapter 28 verse 28 says this. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. You see, he's connecting the idea of the fear of the Lord back to your ability to turn away from evil. Peter's doing the exact same thing. We're supposed to be holy, and that holiness is enabled by what he's done for us, but it's informed by who he is. A right fear of the Lord is born out of the knowledge of him. And a right fear of the Lord spurs holiness in us because it reminds us of the stick that we are avoiding even as we know that we're receiving the carrot. He's the father who judges impartially according to our deeds. So our fear then causes our deeds to fall in line with and to avoid that just judgment. We conduct ourselves with fear because judgment is coming. But we also conduct ourselves with fear because we were bought with a price. You see, the lives we live, all the grace and mercy we now enjoy, that wasn't given to us at no expense. That wasn't for no purpose or at no cost. We've been ransomed from our ways, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, you were stuck in the same feudal ways of your forefathers. You were one silly man after another, bumbling through life, oblivious to the God that you should be fearing, completely unable to meet his standard of holiness. You were trapped in your former passions and your desires. You were living a life completely devoid of true joy and headed for disaster. But then he ransomed you from that life. He bought you out of that slavery and he set you free. And the price of that freedom was the imperishable blood of Jesus Christ, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, even as great as silver and gold are, as costly as they may seem, because they're ultimately perishable, there's a limit to their value. 
But you, you were purchased by the imperishable blood of Christ. You were bought with a price that never depreciates. It's a priceless commodity that's more than enough to pay any debt. It's precious and pure. This sacrifice, it meets every standard of God. It has no defect within it, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Look at all the Father has done to save you, to cause you to be born again. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. See, this plan of God that he's enacted to save you, this was always plan A. He knew before he created the world that he would give the blood of Christ to save his people from their sins. He knew that the ransom would be paid, that the sacrifice would be given. And now... Now that he's made these things manifest, now that these things have come to pass, see that he has raised this Jesus from the dead and given him glory. Know that the blood that was given was not the end of the plan, but merely one more step on the way to his ultimate goal and end. And that goal, that end, was to glorify himself by giving you faith in God. For the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. He made the sacrifice for you so that you might become a believer in him. He raised him from the dead. He caused Jesus to come back to life and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are now in him who has done those things for you. So conduct yourselves with fear because you can see that he bought you with a price. That it wasn't free and easy to get you. That you are not your own any longer because you were bought with that price. Therefore now glorify God in your body. You see yourself, your former life has been crucified with Christ. So now it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And the life that you now live in the flesh, you live not for your sake, but for the sake of him who for your sake died and was raised. As great and glorious as all that gospel is, there's a responsibility that comes with it. That responsibility, that weight, should give us a healthy fear of him who paid the price for us. A healthy understanding and sobriety Concerning you being in this room is not a cheap thing to God. There was a heavy price paid to get you here. All these things today, all these charges given to those who have been born again, they're incredibly important. And therefore, they are not easy. Setting your mind fully on the hope of the grace of Christ, that's not easy. It's not easy when the medical bill shows up. It's not easy when you keep falling into the same old patterns, the same old former sins. Being holy, that's not easy. In fact, it's actually impossible for you. We will never be and act truly holy until we are fully redeemed and glorified in heaven. You will not achieve perfection in this life. But we can progressively, more and more, be holy. We can be more obedient children today than yesterday. And in a world where we continually become more desensitized to awe and wonder, when I am no longer shocked by anything I see or read or experience, 
it's hard for us to conduct ourselves with fear sometimes. It's hard to be that clued into reality. Or maybe for some of us, it's hard in the opposite way. It's hard not to always be afraid of everything. It's hard to not to always be afraid because this is always the most important election of our lifetime. Because every summer is always the hottest one on record. Because all bees have already died. But if we'll remember that we've been born again to a living hope, then I think out of that which God has already done for us, we're able to step forward in faith and be obedient to these charges, to these commands. That as we begin our lives as Christians, we uphold this oath that we have taken to live as God has commanded us to live, to fulfill our calling and to be like Him. I think we can do that if we remember and rest fully with our hope set on who He is and what He's done and the grace that will be revealed to us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to come together with your people to hear your word, to see your gospel. Thank you for the hope of the gospel, for the grace that you've poured out on us. Thank you for giving Christ the ransom for us. Thank you even for these commands, as hard as they may be for us to fulfill, as inadequate as we may be to be able to follow them. Thank you for showing us your holiness in such a way that you call us to enact that same holiness in our lives, to be those same kind of people in our lives. Thank you for giving us something that's worthy of putting our hope fully into, of resting in the grace of Christ. Help us to be holy as you are holy, to reflect you in everything we do, to live lives that honor you in everything we do. God, help us to have the right fear of you, not the wrong fear that causes us to shrink away afraid from you, but the right fear that has a healthy awe and respect of you. Help us to be a people who know that we are safe in your presence because you are good even as we know that because you're good, you are not safe in all circumstances. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.